turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 19, Psalm 119, verse 81. Psalm 119, we'll begin reading in verse 81, and we'll read through verses, verse 88. There the word of Christ says this, My soul languishes for your salvation. I wait for your word. My eyes fail with longing for your word, while I say, When will you comfort me? Though I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your statutes. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? The arrogant have dug pits for me, men who are not in accord with your law. All your commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. They almost destroyed me on earth. But as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. Revive me according to your loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, Lord, knowing that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And Lord, we see this in the psalm today, that the prophet was well acquainted with persecution, with sufferings, with hardships, because of his zeal and his love for you and for your word. Lord, we thank you that you comfort, Lord, those who are afflicted. And that, Lord, in due time, you do arise to deliver your people from all of their enemies. Lord, may we have the same resolve as the prophet David. Lord, may we be committed to truth and righteousness as he was. And, Lord, willing to bear up under sufferings as he was. And, Lord, we pray that you would comfort us just as you did to him. So, Lord, may his experience be ours as well. And, Lord, we pray that you teach us today from your word. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, you've likely noticed that in these sections of Psalm 119, there is typically a theme or a topic that runs right throughout an entire section as it relates to the Word of God. In this section before us today, the prophet David is focusing upon his afflictions and his desire for God to deliver him and to comfort him through his Word. Now, for many people who claim to be Christians, this would seem to be bizarre. Right? What David is experiencing and expressing in this section is completely foreign and contrary to the Christian experience of the average Christian today. Right? Many so-called Christians have never experienced one ounce of suffering for the sake of righteousness, and this is why it seems so peculiar to them. Why is the prophet David speaking like this? Why does he have so many enemies? Why are people persecuting him like this? They would say, well, I'm a Christian and I've never faced any hardships, Right, I'm a Christian and everyone likes me. No one hates me. No one's trying to kill me. No one's speaking evil of me or slandering me. So what gives? Why is it that the prophets, like David, suffer the way that they did? Were they just contentious men who couldn't get along with anyone and this is why they suffered? In contrast to the common experience of many Christians today. Or is the problem that many who claim to be Christians do not suffer because they don't live the way that David lived. They don't pursue righteousness and truth the way that David pursued righteousness and truth. They don't speak up for God the way that David spoke up for God. David was not a pugnacious man who liked to pick fights and squabble and quarrel with people. 
David was a man of peace. He wanted to live a life of peace, but he was also committed to truth and righteousness. And he was uncompromising in his convictions and in his pursuit of the things of God. The reason his experience is so unusual for many is because there are very few people, even very few who claim to be Christians, who pursue righteousness the way that David and the prophets pursued righteousness. Most are not persecuted for the sake of righteousness because they're not living for the sake of righteousness. But if we walk courageously in the pathway of Christ, if we run consistently in the highway of holiness, then we will experience afflictions and sufferings as well, just as David did. Then the psalm will make sense to us. Then it will become very clear why it is that this is the case. David was not a perfect man, but he was a righteous man. And as a result, he had his enemies, those who hated him. And this section of the psalm describes his life and his love for the word of God in the pursuit of righteousness. And it will be a comfort to us as well when we experience afflictions for the sake of righteousness. So let's look at Psalm 119, verse 81. My soul languishes for your salvation. I wait for your word. Here he says his soul is languishing for God's salvation. Right? Not that he has not experienced God's salvation. He is a believer. He is a redeemed man. His sins have been forgiven in Christ. But he means it in the sense that he wants to experience the full realization of his salvation. He wants God to deliver him in the full and final sense where he doesn't have to deal with the world, the flesh, and the devil any longer. He doesn't have to deal with the sufferings that come from wicked men. If we look at Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8 verse 18, we'll see that though our salvation has begun, we have still not received the full, final completion of our salvation, but we're waiting for that. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not, worth compared, not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he has already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. There he says that we are waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body, right? The full final redemption that comes at the revealing of Jesus Christ. This is what he is languishing for, for the full manifestation of the salvation of God. Also, it says in Philippians 1 verse 6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. 
God has begun the good work of salvation, but our salvation has not been brought to its completion yet. We are still being perfected, made perfect, and one day we will be perfected in Christ. Also, 1 John 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. Already, he says, we are children of God. We are children of God now. We have salvation now. Yet what we will be when we see Christ face to face has yet to be revealed. We're still waiting for it in hope. We have not yet been perfectly conformed to the image of Christ and been delivered from all of our enemies, from every form of sin and evil. This is what he's languishing for. The full realization of his salvation when God will deliver him from every evil. He'll deliver him from the evil from within, that is from the flesh, and the evil that is without, that is the world, the wicked, and the devil. He will be delivered from all of these. In the end, God will give salvation to his people in every final way. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Verses 21 to 24. There the apostle says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. There, the apostle says that he is hard-pressed between these two directions. On the one hand, he wants to leave this life. He wants to depart from this life and go and be with Christ. Because that's better by far. That's the best situation for the believer. But on the other hand, for the sake of the church, for the sake of the saints... He wants to remain here in the flesh, in this life, so that he can minister and be a benefit and build up the church. Well, this is what the prophet means when he says he languishes for God's salvation. He desires to depart from this life and to be with Christ, because that is better by far. And this is why his soul languishes for the salvation of God. He knows that when he leaves this life, he will not have to deal with sin anymore. He won't have to deal with wicked men anymore. He won't have to deal with temptation anymore. He will be delivered from all these things. He greatly desires to be delivered, to be with the Lord, to be set free from all sin, from all evil, to be delivered from the maliciousness of wicked men. He yearns for this deliverance, but he does not have it yet. So he languishes for the salvation of God. But while he languishes for this salvation, he does not complain He's not murmuring against the Lord. He's not grumbling against God, but he waits for the word of God. He goes to God's word where he finds comfort, where he is reminded that God will not fail him and God will not forsake him, that God will give him what he has promised. God has begun the good work and God will most assuredly bring it to completion on the day of Christ. His hope is in the world to come, not this present life. He doesn't need the world to love him. 
He doesn't need the praise of men. He doesn't need a life of ease and comfort because he's not living for this world. His hope is not in this life. His hope is in the life to come. And this is one of the benefits of suffering, of afflictions. Hardships in this life cause us to long for the life to come. Whenever we suffer now, it causes us to grow weary of this present world and to desire to be with Christ, to desire to be delivered from all of these things. And the Word of God is what gives us comfort and hope as we wait for our salvation. Verse 82. Verse 82 says, My eyes fail with longing for your word, while I say, When will you comfort me? Here, what is on the inside is now being expressed in the outer man. Inwardly, his soul languishes for God's salvation. Now his eyes are failing. His eyes failing with longing for the word of God. He wants God's salvation. He wants the word of God. His eyes fail him. He wants the word of God so much. This is not some curious, casual observer of the word of God. Someone who's looking here and there to look at something fanciful, to look at some speculative type thing. He's not going to the Bible in that way. He is one who is desperate for the Word of God. He sees that his life, his spiritual life, is bound up with the Word of God and that if he doesn't get it, he's going to perish. So he goes to the Word of God and his eyes even fail him. His love of God is so great through his Word. God's Word is the source of life and strength. This is his daily bread. This is the food by which he wants to be fed. And this is why he longs for it with such fervor. He wants to know the word of God inside and out. Because the word of God gives to him the lens, the ability by which he can rightly view the world and the afflictions that he is now facing. God's word helps us to look at things in reality. Right? Whenever we're not going to the Word of God, whenever we're relying on our own wisdom, everything's upside down. The whole world is backwards. But when we go to the Bible, it gives us the proper perspective concerning this life. We must view this present life in this present world in contrast to the life to come. Otherwise, we're going to be overwhelmed with our afflictions. But when we view the world through the lens of Scripture, then we're not overwhelmed, but instead we are comforted by the Word of God. He pleads with God to comfort him. Then he goes to the place that he knows is the source of the believer's comfort, the Word of God. This is how we have to be. Many people say, ooh, I want God to comfort me. I want the love of God. I want God to give me grace and mercy. But then they neglect the Bible. How is God going to comfort you if you're not reading the Bible? How are you going to receive grace and mercy and strength from God if you're not going to the Bible? You have to go to the Word of God. This is our source. This is the source that God has given us by which we experience the comfort of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians 1 verses 3 to 7. Second Corinthians 1 verse 3 said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, Amen. who comforts us all in our afflictions, so that we be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort for which we ourselves are comforted by God. 
For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient endurance, enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. There again, one of the benefits of sufferings is sufferings lead to what? Comfort. The comfort of God. God is the God of all comfort, the Father of all mercies. And when we are afflicted, He comforts us. He comes to us and He gives us strength and encouragement during our time of need. Well, where does He do this from? From the Word of God. From the Word of Christ. Psalm 119 verse 83 says, Though I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your statutes. Here he compares his life to a wineskin in smoke. The smoke dries out the wineskin so that it is ruined, so that it is destroyed. This is what his persecutors are doing to him. They are like smoke. They're drying him up, right? They are trying to ruin him and to destroy his life. They want to dry him up spiritually so that he is of no use and no value to God, so that he will renounce God, so that he'll curse God and die. Those who hate righteousness, this is what they'll want to do to those who want to live a godly life. They will want to treat them with utter contempt and hatred, and they want to make their life miserable. This is what they want. Well, what should we do when we face such dire circumstances. What drives the prophet? What does he do? Is he mulling in his mind of how he can get revenge, how he can retaliate against those who have betrayed him? Is he thinking about God and saying, you know what? God is, he's, he's forsaken me. He's turned away from me. So why should I be faithful to him? Is he thinking about forsaking God? No, he's not doing this at all. But what? I do not forget your statutes. He's not forsaking the Lord, but remembering God's statutes, remembering God's commandments. Even in the midst of his suffering, even when they are most intense, he will not forget the word of God. He goes to the Bible where he finds comfort and instruction. He will be reminded there in the Bible of what God will do to the ungodly. Yes, he may be like a wineskin in the smoke, but one day they're going to be wineskins in the smoke of God, in God's fury, and God's going to destroy them. So he will be reminded of the punishments that await them. That will give him comfort. He will also, when he goes to the Bible, be reminded of what God's going to do for him, that God will deliver him, and God will safely bring him into his heavenly kingdom, that God will give him deliverance from all of his afflictions and grant him eternal life, and that will comfort him. Also, when he goes to the Bible, he will be reminded of how he ought to live in this present life, how sufferings should not be a surprise to him, but rather he needs to endure and persevere and be faithful to God. So even though his life is like a wineskin in the smoke, he does not forsake God. He doesn't forsake God's statutes, but he continues going to them knowing that that is where he will receive comfort, the promises of God, the hope, his deliverance, the destruction of his enemies, the instructions that he needs in order to live a life
faithful to God. He will be reminded of how he ought to live while he waits for God to deliver him from all his enemies. Look with me at 1 Peter. 1 Peter is teaching much about sufferings and hardships and what should be the perspective of the Christian during these things. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13 says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself in all of your behavior. Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Here, at the beginning of the book, He is laying out the expectation for how the believer ought to live, how the Christian, the child of God, should live. God is our Father, therefore, as our Father is holy, how should we be? We should be holy in all that we do. In all of our conduct, we should live a holy life. Well, that's what David's doing in Psalm 119. When we live a holy life like that, though, what's going to happen? What is inevitably going to happen when we are living a holy life as God is holy? There will be sufferings and persecutions, which he describes in 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter 2 verse 11. It says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. There, they are slandering them as evildoers. Because of what? Because of their good deeds. Because they are living a godly life. They are persecuting them. They are slandering them. They are spreading lies about them, malicious lies, because they are pursuing righteousness. Also, if we look at verse 18, 1 Peter 2, 18, says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Right? If we suffer, if we are treated harshly because we're thieves, because we're profane men, because we're out rabble-rousing and causing problems... Well, then, yeah, you get what you deserve. This is what you deserve for living that kind of life. But if we're living a righteous life, doing the will of God, and we are suffering unjustly, then what do we have to do? We have to patiently endure it. We have to endure the sufferings that we face in this life. Also, chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 16. It says, Keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, Those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. 
here again, they're being slandered for good behavior. For good behavior. And they're suffering for doing what's right. They're not doing what's wrong. They're not sinning. They're doing good and right in the sight of God. And yet, they are being treated as criminals. They are suffering unjustly for these things. Also, chapter 4, verse 1. 4, 1 says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There, the time passed. The time passed. The former life, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that is sufficient time to live like a Gentile, to live like an idolater and a pagan, to live as a profane and a sinful man, to do the kinds of things that wicked men do. But now you've been set free from that, and you're not living that way. But what's happening? The wicked, the Gentiles, the ones that we used to live like, now they're surprised that we don't live like them anymore, that we don't enjoy the same things that they enjoy, that we don't like to do the things that they want to do. And they will malign you. They will ridicule you. They will slander you. Oh, you think you're better than us. Right? You think you're so holy. You're so righteous. Right? We know what kind of a person you are. They're going to do that. But what should we do? Keep doing the will of God. So that ultimately, on the day of judgment, God's going to put them to shame. He's going to prove and show that what you were accusing them of, these criticisms were unjust. These were lies and that they were living a godly life. Then lastly, 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in that name. So there, don't be surprised, he says. Don't be surprised when this happens. Why would you be surprised? We know that this is the case. Which of the prophets didn't suffer? Which of the righteous men and women of the Bible did not suffer persecutions, hardships? Which of them wasn't slandered, didn't have malicious gossips rise up against them and lie about them? Of course, this is the way it was with all of them, and this is the way it will be with us. And if we're slandered for the sake of Christ, he says, you have nothing to be ashamed of. Actually, it's a badge of honor. You should be honored. You should see this as something that is good because it reveals that you have true faith. But don't let anyone suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, a troublesome meddler. Right? We shouldn't be that kind of person who suffers and then says, look at me, I'm suffering for Christ. No, you're a meddler, man. That's why you're suffering. But if we are suffering for the sake of righteousness, then we have nothing to be ashamed of. And when we suffer that way, we should not be surprised and we should not forsake the Lord. We should not be tempted 
as Job's wife tempted him. Curse God and die. Why do you hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. No, we should never do that. Why would we abandon the Lord? Knowing that this is what he has given to all of his children. And if we would inherit the kingdom of God, if we would be glorified with Christ, we must first suffer with Christ. Jesus Christ suffered, so we should suffer as well. Why is it good for him, but not good for us? No, we must bear up under our sufferings. Verse 84, Psalm 119, 84. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? How many are the days of your servant? He means this in the sense of suffering. How many are the days when I will suffer this affliction? When will you deliver me from my persecutors, from my oppressors? Right? When we are in affliction, when some persecutor arises who is tormenting us, it appears that we are stuck in a never-ending nightmare, that we're going to live out the rest of our days, the rest of our life in hardship and affliction, and that we will never again experience and enjoy a day of peace, tranquility, of happiness, of quiet from those who hate us and want to do us harm. This is what he's thinking about. This is what he's pondering. How long, Lord, how long will I suffer? How long till you rise up and execute judgment on those who persecute me? Again, in this, he's not seeking personal retaliation. He's not growing impatient with God. He's not throwing up his hand saying, Okay, God, you're not going to do anything. I'm going to take matters into my own hands, right? Obviously, you don't care about me, so I'm going to have to go and take care of it myself. He's not doing that at all, is he? He's committing his way to the Lord. He says, when will you, Lord, when will you rise up and execute judgment on my persecutors, on my enemies? This is the way of Christ. Christ did not retaliate but he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 23 says, For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Notice that. He suffered for us, and he has left us an example that we should follow in his steps. Meaning, this is what is to be expected. This is the Christian life, and we have to walk in the pathway of Christ. We have to live the way that Christ lived. Well, what did he do when he suffered? Notice verse 22. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's what Christ did. He entrusted himself to God, who would judge righteously. He knew that God would grant him vengeance on his enemies in his timing, right? In due time, God would deliver him. That's what the prophet David is doing here. He's entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He knows that he is in the right. He knows that he has committed no sin against these men, that would cause them to do this. He's not a murderer. He's not a thief. He's not a troublesome meddler. He's not been doing those kinds of things that would justify them treating him in this way. He's living a godly life. His persecutors are wicked men, lying men, malicious men. 
So he's asking God, when will you deliver me from their evil? Psalm 59. Psalm 59, verse 1. Psalm 59.1 says, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Set me securely on high away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity, and save me from men of bloodshed. For behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me. Not for my transgression, nor my sin, O Lord. For no guilt of mine, they run and set themselves against me. Arouse yourself to help me and see. There he says, they're doing this to him, but not for any sin that he's committed against them. Not for any transgression, no sin, no guilt, that they're doing this to him. So why are they doing it? For the sake of righteousness. They're doing it because they hate God. They love wickedness. They love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. What they are doing to him is evil. It is a great injustice. It is not right when wicked men persecute the righteous because the righteous are living a godly life. This is an evil thing. It is an injustice that happens in this world. But God is a just God. And God always judges in righteousness. That's what he knows. He knows the character and nature of God. He understands sin. He understands these men. He knows what's taking place in the world. He knows that they're doing evil. So he knows as well that in due time, God will deliver him and God will repay with afflictions those who afflict him. And he's simply here pondering, thinking about when God will do this. When will God rise up and judge my enemies? He's doing this in expectation, hopeful expectation of the deliverance of God. Now, there are many examples of this in the life of David, his interactions with King Saul. We know that Saul had no legitimate reason to persecute and to seek to kill David, though he did so on multiple occasions. He tried to murder David. Yet when David had the opportunity to kill Saul, he refused to do so. Even though his own men were encouraging him to do so, David said, my hand will not be against him. David was unwilling to take matters into his own hands, but instead he waited for God. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly, and he knew that in due time, God would execute judgment upon King Saul. God would put him to death, and God would vindicate David in the eyes of all men and in the eyes of King Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel 24, verse 8. First Samuel 24, 8 says, Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave, called after Saul, saying, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord have given you today into my hand in the cave, and some said to kill you. But my eye had pity on you, and I said, 
I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now, my father, see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. No one perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? The Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me. And may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. There, David, my hand will not be against you, but God's will be against you. I will commit my way to the Lord and may God judge between you and me and God will give me deliverance from you. And what did God ultimately do? God did exactly get that. God did judge King Saul. God did execute judgment against him and give vengeance to David against his enemy. And not only will he do that for David, he'll do that for all of his people. He will do it for all of the righteous in due time. But until then, we have to wait. We have to wait and we have to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. We must wait for the Lord to grant us justice against our enemies. Sometimes God will do that in this life, and sometimes we have to wait until the day of judgment. But we can be assured that in the end, God will vindicate his people, and God will judge their enemies. So we must have hope and wait for the Lord. Verse 85. The arrogant have dug pits for me, Men who are not in accord with your law. Here he describes his enemies as the arrogant. The arrogant who have dug pits for me. His persecutors are arrogant men. Remember back in verse 78. Verse 78. He says, May the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie. Already the arrogant are those who lie. They are liars. They subvert him with lies. Now he calls the arrogant those who are not in accord with your law or with your word. This is something we must understand and believe. An arrogant man is not merely a man who talks about himself constantly, who wants to puff himself up above everyone else, who is a braggadocious man. Certainly that person is an arrogant man. But ultimately an arrogant man is someone who rejects the word of God. At any point of the Word of God, where the Word of God teaches something, if a man opposes that, rejects what the Word of God teaches, and promotes his own wisdom instead of the wisdom of God, at that point, that man is an arrogant man. He is filled with pride, and he is also a liar, because he is contradicting the Word of God. An arrogant man is ultimately someone who believes his own wisdom and his own judgments are superior to God's. The arrogant man will not submit his life to the word of God because he knows better than God. He is a better judge of reality than the Lord. He has a better understanding of truth and righteousness than God. The arrogant who love lies hate the word of God. They hate God's word because God's word is truth 
And God's word has the audacity to contradict them. That God has the audacity to contradict the arrogance. This is why they hate the word of God so much. The word of God is true without any mixture of error. And God's word exposes them for the liars that they are. And an arrogant man cannot stand to have anyone contradict him. To have anyone be over him. To be superior to him. To have any authority over him. And this is why they have such disdain for the word of God. For God's word, more than anything else in the world, world, reveals what is true and right. God's word exposes them for being liars, the liars that they truly are. Right? When a man believes or promotes something that is contrary to the Bible, he is an arrogant man who is promoting lies. He is a liar just like his father, the devil. The devil is the father of lies, and anyone who believes and promotes something contrary to the Bible is also a liar like his father and is himself promoting lies. We have to understand this because there are many people in churches today who claim to be Christians who are promoting lies, who are promoting doctrines, promoting commandments that are not found in the Bible. And if someone is doing that, then they are promoting what is contrary to the truth. They are not of God, but they are of their father, the devil. They're not sincere. They do not mean well. They are not good intentioned people. They do not have good motives but rather they are arrogant men who love lies rather than truth. They hate God's word, and because they hate God's word, they also hate those who love and proclaim the word of God, which is one of the defining characteristics of a believer, is that the believer loves the word of God, and he talks about the word of God. I believe, therefore I speak. Whatever we believe, this is what we will speak. So this is what they are like. They are arrogant men who hate, they have no regard for the word of God. And what do they do to him because of this? They dig pits for him. They have dug a pit for the prophet David. A pit in order to trap him, to catch him, to destroy him, so that they can silence him because they don't want him speaking against their lies. They don't want him exposing them for being false men. So they set a trap. Now these traps, these pits can be both literal and they can be figurative. Literal in the sense that the arrogant, they will want to physically harm the righteous man so as to silence him. If the righteous man is dead, he can't speak anymore. He can't talk and he cannot contradict our lies. So they will set literal physical traps for them in order to destroy them and to put them to death. But also they'll set figurative traps, moral traps, so that the righteous man is discredited and then he can be silenced. His message can be silenced. Either way, the goal is to silence the truth so that they don't have to listen. Joseph, righteous Joseph, experienced these traps in both ways. Isn't that the case? In chapter 37 of Genesis, his brothers literally threw him into a pit. They threw him into a well. But then later, Potiphar's wife, she set a pit for him. She dug a trap for him, figuratively, whenever she tempted him to sin, when she was trying to seduce him with immorality. They set traps for him in both ways. But ultimately, what did God do? God delivered him. He delivered him in both 
cases. But this is what the arrogant will do to the righteous. Verse 86. All of your commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. Here, all of God's commandments are faithful. All of his commandments are trustworthy. In the midst of affliction, we might begin to think, God's ways are not right. God's ways are wrong. God's ways are unrighteous, and these men, they're in the right. They're right, and I should listen to them. They are right, and God is wrong. But here, David is fully convinced, no matter how much he might suffer, no matter how dark it may become, God's word, God's commands are always faithful. They are trustworthy in that he cannot go wrong with believing and living according to the word of God. We can never go wrong when we're doing what the Bible says. That is the place of safety. It is safe to do the will of God, to obey God, to walk in the pathway of his commandments because all of his commandments are faithful. They are all trustworthy. They'll never lead us astray, but they will only and always lead us in the pathway of righteousness, in the pathway of blessedness, in the good and pleasing way to the Lord. This is because God is true. God is true, therefore God's word is true. Everything that comes from God is true. And this we must be settled in. We must have this conviction, fully convinced that every word of God proves true. And that anything in this world that rises up and contradicts the word of God, it is evil. And we have to reject it and have nothing to do with it, even if it comes from so-called professionals, so-called doctors, so-called PhDs, right? Intellectual men, those who sit around in their ivory towers and pontificate to us about the world and the things of the world and everything that we should believe. If what they say contradicts the Bible, it does not matter what institution they come from. It does not matter how many degrees that they may possess. They are liars and we should not listen to them. They are not trustworthy, but God is trustworthy. We should always go with God and not listen to the lies of men because of Proverbs 35 and 6. Proverbs 30 verse 5, every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. Anyone who adds to or tries to take away from the word of God what are they going to be proven on the day of judgment? They are liars. They are liars, and God will destroy them. But when we believe the word of God, then God is a shield to us. He, he, he gives us safety during our life and into the life to come. Here, because of the truthfulness of God's word, because it is good and the commandments of God are righteous, the wicked are not able to condemn the righteous man on the basis of facts and reality. They cannot bring a true, legitimate charge against the righteous man. Right? What can they condemn him for? Reading his Bible too much? Praying to God? Right? Doing good to men? Raising his family in the fear of God? Paying his taxes? Being a hard worker? Right? Getting along with his neighbors? doing those types of things, what, what charge can a wicked man bring against a righteous man? There is no charge that he can bring against him if he's living a godly life. 
So if he cannot bring a charge against him on the basis of reality and facts, then what does he have to do? He has to conjure it up. He has to create charges out of thin air. He has to fabricate lies so that he can then have some reason to charge him. And that's what they're doing here. He says, they are persecuting me with a lie. With a lie. Not with truth. Not with reality. Not with facts. Right? If I was doing those things, okay, then I'm getting what I deserve. But I'm not doing those things. Yet they're still treating me like a criminal. They're persecuting me with lies. Isn't this what Saul did to David? He sought to put David to death on the basis of lies. Oh, David is an insurrectionist. David's trying to overthrow my kingdom. He's trying to kill me so that he can become king in my place. But did David ever do any of those things? Was there any reason for him to suspect any of that? No. It was Saul's own evil suspicion, his own jealousy and hatred for David that led him to behave and to believe those lies. And he was listening to lying men, men, wicked men, who themselves wanted to be promoted, who were in his ear telling him lies about David, and then he chose to believe their lies against the facts, the facts of reality and the facts of the Bible. He had to resort to lies in order to persecute David. This is the same with the Apostle Paul. In Acts 25, verse 11, the Apostle Paul, here in the courtroom, in the courtroom, before the the governor, the ruler, this is what he says. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of these things is true, of which these men accuse me, then no one can hand me over to them, I appeal to Caesar. He says, if I've done anything worthy of death, then let me be put to death, right? Bring the facts forward, show the evidence, right? Put me on trial, and if it is proven that I have been doing things worthy of death, if I'm a murderer, if I'm a thief, if I'm an insurrectionist, if I'm a troublesome meddler, then yes, put me to death. But if I have not done anything worthy of death, If none of these things are true, which these men are falsely accusing me of, then no one can hand me over to them. Then it's not right for me to be handed over to them and for them to put me to death. Right? If these were honest men, truthful men, then David wouldn't have any problem. If the Apostle Paul was dealing with honest, truthful men, then the Apostle Paul wouldn't have any problem. But we're not dealing with those kinds of people. The world is not filled with honest, truthful men. What is the world filled of? Wicked men. And what are all men according to the word of God? All men are liars. They're liars. They love darkness rather than light. They are malicious, arrogant liars who do not care about truth. They do not care about righteousness. They only want to get their own way. And they will not stop at anything. So what can the faithful do? Well, what does he do? He says, help me. He cries out to God. God, you have to help me. He pleads with the Lord. He doesn't walk away from the faith. He doesn't go and create his own lies to contradict their lies. He cries out to God, Lord, help me. Save me from these men. You see how vile they are. You see how malicious they are. You know their lies, that what they're saying is not true. Save me, deliver me, help me from these men. 
verse 87. How precarious was it for David? They almost destroyed me on the earth. But as for me, I did not forsake your precepts. This is how bad it was for David. This is how severe his afflictions were. They almost destroyed me, he said, on the earth. His life was in jeopardy so many times, multiple times, he barely escaped with his life. He was almost executed, almost assassinated, nearly put to death. Didn't Saul try to pin him against the wall with a spear? He threw a spear at him right there, tried to pin him against the wall. He sent assassins to go kill him one night, and David's wife had to lower him out of a window so that he could escape with his life. Saul chased him relentlessly. Even one time on the same mountain, he was so close to him that he nearly caught him and would have no doubt killed him had he got him. What about when his own son Absalom invaded Jerusalem? David, Absalom came in one side and he had to flee out the other or his life would have been lost. In all these situations, he was nearly destroyed. Nearly destroyed on earth. His life was in very real jeopardy and he barely escaped. But though this was the case, though his sufferings were so hard, he never forsook God's precepts. No matter how dire the situation, he never turned away from the Lord, but kept living a godly life. He followed the word of God. Now, how many of us can say that we were nearly destroyed on the earth for the sake of righteousness? Have any of us ever had someone throw a spear at us and try to pin us up against the wall? Have any of us ever been lowered out of a window by our wife so that we could barely escape with our life? Have we ever been betrayed by our own child who sought to kill us? Has that happened to any of us? Have we been in jeopardy, physical jeopardy, like King David was? Likely no. This has not happened to us. We might experience some nasty words, some rejection, some ridicule, some slander and gossip. But likely... We have never had our lives threatened like David. So our persecutions are not as severe as his, right? Though it is persecution, when people ridicule us, when they slander us, when they gossip and lie about us, when they reject us, right? That is a form of persecution, but it's not as severe as someone threatening to take your life and trying to take your life and doing those things. So our persecutions are not as severe as his, But he did not forsake God in the midst of his severe afflictions. So what should be true of us? We should not forsake God. If he didn't forsake God in his greater affliction, then we should not forsake God in our lighter affliction. If he was able to remain by the power of the Spirit faithful to the Lord, then what can we do by the power of the Spirit? We also can be faithful to the Lord. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. Romans 15, verse 4. Whatever was written, was written for us. It's written for us. These things happen as examples to them, right? But they're written for us. It's written for us for our benefit. So even if persecutors arise, even if the mood of the nation shifts and it becomes open season on Christians... And we are in danger of being destroyed on the earth. We cannot renounce the faith. We cannot turn away from Christ. 
We cannot deny the word of God. If we do, then God will deny us. We have to be like the prophet David. We cannot forsake the precepts of God. We must never forsake the word of God, but hold fast to it until the return of Christ. Then verse 88 says, Revive me according to your loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Revive me, he says, according to your loving kindness. When we go through afflictions and hardships, it feels like sometimes that we're going to be dried up. Spiritually speaking, we're like in a wasteland. But he doesn't want that to be true of him. He doesn't want his zeal for the Lord to be extinguished by the hatred and the lies of the wicked. But he wants, even in the midst of his hardships and sufferings, he wants God to revive him, to revivify him, to give him new life, to give him strength so that he can do the will of God. Give me vitality, renew me by your loving kindness. God, give me your love, give me your grace, give me your mercy in this life. And for what reason? Why does he want the love and mercy of God? Well, notice what he says. So that, here's the purpose, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. He doesn't say, revive me, give me your loving kindness, so that I won't have to face these people anymore, so that I won't have any more persecutors, so that I can have a life of comfort and ease, so that I can have worldly pleasures and riches. He wants the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, so that he can obey God. I want to obey you. I want to keep the testimony of your mouth. Give me the grace so that I can obey you. That's the way that he is, to live a righteous life, a faithful life defined by keeping the testimonies that come from the mouth of God. And this is the way that we should be as well. We should greatly desire the love, the kindness, the grace, the mercy, the favor of God to be upon our life. For God to fill us with his spirit, for God to pour out his grace and mercy upon us for this ultimate reason, so that we can be faithful, wise slaves to Christ, so that we can be obedient children who are committed to doing the will of our Father and of our Master who is in heaven. May this be true of us. May we have this desire, this zeal, this hunger, this thirsting for righteousness, to do the will of God. And may God grant to us the same favor, the same loving kindness that he granted to his servant, David. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you, Lord, knowing that you are our God. Lord, you are our Father. And that just as he who has called us is holy, so, Lord, we are to be holy in all of our conduct. Lord, you have called us to turn away from sin and, Lord, to live a life of righteousness. Lord, to not participate in the sins of this world. Lord, to not live in the way that we formerly lived. Lord, the way that the ungodly lived, but rather, Lord, to reject those things and to pursue truth and righteousness. Lord, we pray that we would have a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Lord, that we would have a zeal for the things of God. Lord, that we would live a godly life. And that we would have such conviction, Lord, that not only do we practice righteousness, 
Lord, in all things, but also that we speak about it. Lord, that we talk about the things of God, the truth of your word. And let, Lord, we're not ashamed of those things. But Father, we know that if we live like the prophet David, and if we have the same zeal for truth and righteousness that he possessed, that, Lord, there will be situations, there will be times, Lord, with our family, with our friends, Lord, with those that we work with while we're out and about in the world, that we will see things, Lord, that will be unsettling to our spirit. Lord, that we will hear things, Lord, that we know are not true but are lies. And that we will not be able to be silent, but that we will have to speak up. And Lord, say what is true and right. And Lord, when that happens, many times, those to whom we speak will not be pleased with what we say. That they will reject it, and that they will reject us. And then they will revile us and persecute us, and say all manner of evil against us falsely, because of you and because of your word. Lord, may we not be those who are silent because we don't want to face persecution. But rather, Lord, we pray that we would have, Lord, an unwavering conviction for your word and that we would defend your word against anything that assaults it. Lord, when we suffer, we pray that you would help us. Lord, that you would deliver us from our enemies. Lord, that those who reject us, Lord, are doing so. If we are living a righteous life, and Lord, if we are believing and promoting the truth, Lord, they're, they're rejecting us because they hate you and because they reject you and your word and they hate the way of righteousness. Lord, we pray that you would rise up against them and that, Lord, you would execute judgment on our enemies. Lord, that you would put them to open shame and that, Lord, you would give us victory over them. Lord, those who are promoting what is evil and false. Lord, whether that be in the culture, Lord, in our society, where we see so much that is evil, so many lies, Lord, so much wickedness being promoted as if it is good, being celebrated, Lord, in the broad daylight. Lord, we pray that you would put an end to those who do such things. Or, Lord, whether it be in the churches, Lord, where there are so many lies that are being taught and promoted, Lord, as if they are true. Where men are bearing false witness about you. Lord, would you put an end to these things and of these people. And Lord, cause us to dwell securely. Lord, to be established and steadfast and immovable. Lord, in your will. Lord, give us patience. Lord, to wait and to entrust ourselves to you who judges justly. Lord, to see that even if you call us to suffer for the rest of our life, Lord, even if you never give us a day of deliverance, it's still light and momentary in comparison to the glory that will be revealed to us. Lord, we thank you that you have given to us the holy prophets and the holy apostles and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Lord, who suffered such great afflictions, such hatred from men, and yet they did not deny you, but they continued, Lord, living a godly life. And Lord, we have an example to follow. So Lord, may we, as they did, bear up under sufferings. And Lord, consider it a good thing, Lord, that we've been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. And Lord, we pray that just as you comforted them, and Lord, just as you delivered them from all of their afflictions, 
So also, Lord, comfort us in the midst of our afflictions, and Lord, deliver us according to your will from all those things that afflict us in this life. And Lord, we'll give you the praise and glory. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.